Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Autism Spectrum Radio. If you are caring for a person with autism, great information from a trusted source can be a lifeline. We hope today's conversation will help you create success for the extraordinary individual with autism in your life. Now, here is your host, Rob Haupt. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Autism Spectrum Radio. I'm your host, Rob Haupt. I'm the vice president here at Autism Spectrum Therapies, an agency providing services to individuals with autism all across the country. Um, also a BCBA, Board Certified Behavior Analyst. So as, as many of you know by now, I'm, I'm an ABA guy. And ABA is something I've been practicing and doing for about 13 years now. Um, haven't been here for a while. We, uh, we took a little bit of a break uh, due to somewhat my needs and, and my schedule and also uh, just kind of the ever-changing needs of, of our clients, the environment, all the different things that, um, that we're all just trying to balance out in our day-to-day. But I figured now's a perfect time to come back. Uh, a little bit of a cold to come back with, but it is, it's the beginning of April. You know, it's April 3rd. Autism Awareness Month is upon us and uh, something that I, I definitely want us to talk a little bit about and start kicking off today. Uh, but just felt like the right time to come back with the show and and get things going again. Um, and I'm even more just kind of struck by just the timing of this and, and thinking now's the right time to to get going again full speed just based upon the uh, the results from the CDC. I'm, I'm sure so many of you guys uh, have already heard the news stories. It feels like they've been going all day, every day. CNN, Time, it, I, I got so many emails forwarded to me from so many different people, some of them in, in the autism community, some of them just people who don't really know anything about it or, or what we are talking about, but they're friends who know what I do for a living and wanted to spread the word and make sure I knew the the most up-to-date information. And, you know, obviously the, the number is a little staggering, um, Hearing one in sixty-eight, just I don't know. I got I got caught a little off guard by all of that. Um, it was really it was really surprising to me. I, I thought, you know, when I hear these numbers that you know recently went from I believe a hundred down to eighty-eight, when when you hear a new number jump that much more and that much more aggressively, it's it's a little concerning. Um, so I, I started to dig into it and I started to research it. And I tried to read everything I could. Um, I know one of the things that always comes to my mind, being in so many different states, is you know, are you seeing certain pockets? And, and that's something I'm trying to read more and more about and, and learn more about is what are the differences state to state, city by city? Uh, I think I've talked on the show before about some of the research that's being done here in L.A. And so sometimes I think communities, if there's higher incidences, is interesting um, you know, quickly, I think of the study I've talked about where they were looking at uh, the Boone Fetter Clinic here in uh, Children's Hospital of Los Angeles did where they were looking at proximity to the freeway, uh, particularly the I-10 or the 10 freeway here, uh, the proximity that people were living to the freeway and how air pollution could maybe contribute. And so then, therefore, do you see a higher pro- um, incident of autism in cities that maybe have a higher pollution rate? 
know LA, we've got the smog and we've got these different things. Well, well does that make a difference? What, how do you compare us to another city or another state in the country that maybe doesn't have pollution at the rates that we do? You know, those are some things I really want to learn more about. I know people in the past studies have talked about where maybe you're getting too much of a concentration of this population versus that population. Um, and so maybe that's a factor. Uh, but those are the things I'm really curious about, you know, where you've got this big, broad number, but how does it break down into the individual cities and states and communities that kind of make up this this big, broad number? Uh, the other thing that kind of struck me, and it was in a review um, of the study, just like an, or I guess not a review, a summary, a summary of the study that I read, and it was, I think it was the CNN review or, or summary that talked about that the CDC results were um, mentioning that uh, African-American and Hispanic children were less likely to be, uh, to be on the autism spectrum. And you know, one of the things that I immediately thought about are the, the cultural conversations we've had. We've had a bunch of guests over the years talk about that African-American children are going to be diagnosed much later in life. I believe the, the number or the time frame we heard is two and a half years later compared to the average Caucasian child. And I believe Hispanic children were similar. Um, I wonder how that factors in. You know, is it that they really are less likely or is it truly that we're just not hearing about these diagnoses as quickly? Is this a matter of a lack of resources, a lack of awareness, a, a cultural piece, as so many of our guests have pointed out, um, where maybe there's a less acceptance or um, of the diagnosis, less of a, a desire to seek it out. There, there was a whole lot of different factors a number of people have identified, um, particularly resources and, and access to professionals to diagnose being the biggest. Um, I'm really curious how that factors in. And, and you know, are we just really scratching the surface of this one in 68? And, and is there a lot more work we need to do to, to get into it? Um, the other thing that I'm sure is coming to all of your minds, too, is that popped to mind is we, we probably need to play a lot more focus or, or put more focus and, and spend more time on figuring out What's going on? What's causing this? Like the cause question is, is starting to feel like the elephant in the room when I read these articles. One in 68 is, is huge. It's, it's a huge amount. And then I, if I'm remembering off the top of my head correctly, I believe it's something like one in 40-something boys. And it's definitely under one in 50. And, and for some reason for me, one, being less than one in 50 was just that got me more than anything you know I think about you know being a new parent and, and having a son and just the, the percentages and the odds that come with this and how scary that must be um, now that we have so much more awareness and it's just it's something that I think we need to really spend a little bit more time talking about and digging into and understanding so I don't know. I'm, I'm hoping to talk a lot more about this in the coming month. Uh, I know we have some great guests coming up this month to to address some of the issues I've already brought up and probably point out a whole lot of others that I haven't even gotten to yet. Um, but 
it, it seems like a starting point, not necessarily an end or a solution or or even, I guess, um, affirmation that, you know, these conversations have been right, but more of a proof that we need to do a lot more. So uh, well, why don't we get to today's show, today's guest. Um, today I am joined uh, by Sarah Gershfeld. Uh, Sarah is a blog contributor for the Huffington Post and uh, was actually the author of this week's blog entitled April in, in Autism, Is Awareness Enough? Uh, she's also a works as a behavior analysis and performance improvement consultant and is also the founder of Love My Provider. Uh, Love My Provider merged in 2011 with a mission to help passionate parents find meaningful providers for their special needs children. Uh, They aimed to channel their energy into highlighting innovative organizations that are changing the way children receive services for the better. She's also served as a board member for the Association for Science and Autism Treatment, as well as an adjunct professor at the Chicago School of Professional Psychology. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Hi, it's really, you know, you and I have kind of connected a few times, I think, kind of indirectly, whether it be through LinkedIn and I think some colleagues. So it's it's kind of nice to to finally speak and, uh, and kind of learn more about what you've been up to and what you're doing. Yeah, definitely. It's great to talk to you and finally connect. I've definitely heard, heard, heard your show and see a lot of the great work you're doing, so it's nice to be well, here. Absolutely. Well, I, I was hoping we could maybe start off with, um, I was really curious about your project and your organization, Love My Provider. Um, I I sure. heard about it a few months ago, and I started checking it out, and I, I thought it was kind of a cool, um, just kind of a, a cool and different approach you were you were. I guess, putting to getting resources out there. So I was hoping you could maybe tell us a little bit about what Love My Provider is and how it got started. Sure. So Love My Provider, you kind of gave a good overview when you opened the show. So I'll try and kind of explain the basis for why it's there and why it's important. And uh, essentially, a lot of families who've been there know how tough it is to find providers that work well for their kids. Um, And this doesn't just mean behavior services or speech services. It means anything from a hairdresser who knows how to deal with a child with autism and doesn't get scared by tantrums or some of the difficult behaviors that some of these kids have. Um, So we noticed when I I was looking at a lot of the resources that are out there, Autism Speaks, TACA, they have these wonderful lists of resources available to these families. And it's really difficult for families to know exactly where to where to go. You know, they, they essentially they do a lot of the work over again that many families have done. And I started working at the regional center doing quality assurance a couple of years ago, and found that uh, there are some things we can look at that we call quality indicators. So it doesn't necessarily mean that a provider is quality, but there are certain things associated with quality that you know, if we know that a provider has certain characteristics, then our kids maybe have a better chance of getting better services. And so that's kind of where the idea emerged, is having almost like a Yelp for families who have special needs children, not just autism, where, you know, obviously parent opinion isn't everything, but it it is something. And right now it's where a lot of families get feedback about where to go. And so it's kind of having that resource available to families who maybe don't have a close friend in the community or have a support network available to them. Yeah, I mean, I, I, the thing that jumped out at me about is the idea of families giving, I guess, recommendations and summaries and analysis. 
it, it reminds me similar to the, the philosophy I have with, um, you know, accessing insurance funding for ABA. It's, you know, this parent told me a long time ago, it, it's such a tricky and slippery, slippery slope. It's great to have the expertise and experience of hundreds of other parents. And if you can kind of rally and, and gather information and experiences in, in a central place, whether it be through a provider, through a resource group, whatever, where you can say, hey, we all went through this process. We all kind of went through this insurance process that's all new to us. Let's all learn together and benefit from that information. Each parent will have a better opportunity to access services and, and learn this new system. It sounds like you're kind of doing the same thing when it comes to resources and providers and, and just different, I guess, service providers in the area. Right. So a lot of these conversations happen already. You, you hit the nail on the head. These conversations are happening with hundreds of thousands of parents who, who have to figure out the system. And we're just trying to organize the conversation in a place that can be accessible to families who don't know where to find it. Um, so a, a lot of families know about these Yahoo chat rooms or these Facebook groups and things like that, mm -hmm. but there's so many and they're so spread out. And typically what you find is a parent will post on a Facebook page looking for a dentist and you'll have 20 families who post, you know, this dentist works for us. Um, mm -hmm. And we've really done, I think, a comprehensive job of kind of pouring over a lot of these conversations and picking out that information and trying to compile it in one place. You know, one of the things I'm wondering, because you mentioned Yelp, is there like a screening process um, to make sure of people, like, these are parents who are actually posting, not just, like, a lot of random people. Like, I think of um, the restaurant industry, and I have friends who are in the restaurant business, and, you know, the idea of, okay, sometimes it's customers posting, sometimes you want to get other people to post who maybe aren't uh, customers per se, but, like, the restaurants themselves post, and, and you hear different stories like that of what different people are doing. Um, is there, like, how does that work for you guys? Do you have a, a process to kind of, uh, I guess, sure. ensure so the we, quality we, piece? Yeah. We have um, a couple things in place. So we have some quality guidelines in the sense that we have a place for families to leave text reviews, but we right. haven't made those public yet. We're kind of trying to figure out exactly the type of review parents are leaving and whether it's meaningful. We want to make sure that it's not a place for slander or where people are maybe writing things that may not be the most accurate, and we understand that parents sometimes also have very strong opinions um, when things don't go very well, but they also have strong opinions when they go well. So we're kind of looking at that as, you know, if there is a text review, we're holding on to that and trying to decide what we can mm -hmm. do with that information. In terms of identifying whether it's actually a parent or maybe a provider trying to elevate their own score, um, we do have um, on our admin panel, we can see the IP address, so we can identify if someone is posting multiple reviews from the same IP address, for example. Mm, um, right. So if we see five reviews for the same provider that are all five stars and they're coming from the same place, we kind of get a feel that that provider or that, 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 that something weird is going on. Um, mm -hmm. So that's one thing. Another thing, we also uh, can see, we, we only allow people to leave reviews if they're signed in. So we found that, you know, just the fear, the, the, the idea that, we have their email address. People don't want to leave things that aren't true in a sense. So if, um, you know, we had someone who was leaving a review with the email address, which we've had, of the provider that they're reviewing, that looks a little fishy to us also, and we'll remove those reviews. So 
we, we try and take it case by case, and we realize this is new and that Yelp has had to deal with a lot of these problems, and we're trying to just apply the same knowledge they use to what yeah. we're doing. Yeah, that's awesome. Because, yeah, that's the – I got to feel like anyone who's going to a, a source like this wants to know that there's that there's that trust there. Hey, you could trust these reviews. People have screened through them, and, and you're getting that honest feedback um, that's representative right. of, of each person. It's, um, it's funny, actually. When, when I first – uh, when I first launched the first version of the site a couple of years back, I had tried to make it off the Yelp model that had a name and a profile, and we found that so many parents were hesitant to leave reviews because they want it to be a place where they can speak openly but not feel like those reviews are accessible to anyone and any, any person who sees it. So we've hidden the reviews in a sense that you have to be logged in to see the, the detailed reviews. You can see an average if you do our search, but you actually mm-hmm. have to log in to be able to see the details. Yeah, I think that's really nice. It just, like you said, I think you're more likely if you're signing in and, and leaving some trail of who you are, uh, you're probably a lot more likely to take it seriously, be honest, um, be probably more objective with with what you leave behind. Definitely. Um, I, you know, one of the things I was curious about, just because of the work I do, it looked like the site right now is very California focused. Um, mm-hmm. Is there is there a plan to expand it to be more of a national presence? Yeah, we're we're hoping to do that. We're really excited about the response we've gotten just from the greater LA region. We've had a lot of providers actually reach out to us that are really excited, and we recently have had a couple providers who aren't in LA reach out to us also, saying, "When are you guys coming to our city?" We've had some people from Boston, from the Houston mm-hmm. area. So we're really trying to get that database together as quickly as possible. And, you know, mm-hmm. if there are any families out there who have favorite providers outside of Los Angeles, we encourage them to send those listings to us. You can email me directly at sarah at lovemyprovider.com and send those in. And we've just had so many so many parents emailing us information. And the minute we get the database ready, we plan to move forward as quickly as possible. That's awesome. Yeah, I could I could see that need being – as great as the tool is, it is for families here in, in L.A., just thinking about all the families I meet in other states where there's not a regional center system to help you get started, I could see your, your resource being just so huge for those families. Right. For example, in, in L.A., as we know, for L.A. Unified, the, the district contracts with non-public agencies mm-hmm. uh, that service the schools, but in a lot of other areas, they're actually hired staff that work and do the behavioral work or do the speech therapy or other types of therapies. So we're really trying to focus on the best way to compile that information because here we would have to list it. For other states, we would have to list it by the actual name of the person versus the agency, for example. Mm, Got it. Got it. I understand. Well, I think it's really cool what you're doing with with this resource and and getting this information out there. Um, You know, I was... I was actually kind of curious to talk about some of the other things you've got going on as well. Um, you, um, you know, I mentioned at the top of the show that you wrote this uh, really interesting blog this week on the Huffington Post um, called April and Autism is Awareness Enough? And I was hoping maybe you could share with our listeners kind of the, the general theme and message behind the blog. Sure, yeah, our... The blog was really something that I've had on my mind for a while. You know, the last couple of years, every time Autism Awareness Month rolls around, I, I noticed that we have so, so much, you know, people are wearing blue, the, the Facebook feeds are just 
you know, there's tons of information and everyone who isn't in the field of autism comes up to me and asks me questions about autism and wants to know more. And it almost feels like after April, it's silence. And I wanted to get this out there just as a message that this month is such an important month because we really highlight all the progress we've, we've made, you know, over the last decade and more. Um, and, we, and we really do so much to promote the cause, but just kind of urging people to keep in mind that the autism is something that we need to consider year-round. Um, and I, I talked a little bit about that, you know, where our research funding efforts are going to and what issues we really want to keep in mind as the years progresses. So I talked about how a lot of uh, funding right now goes towards research and that it's really a wonderful cause to understand what causes autism or, you know, how where it, where it comes from, but it's also important to know that families who have a child with autism today really need support in figuring out where to go for the right services. And obviously, that's a passion of mine with love my provider. But it's mm-hmm. it's also something I see in terms of being a clinician, where lots of families come in and maybe haven't had the best guidance in terms of a service that is maybe science based. And especially as these numbers grow, it's it's a lot more of a powerful issue and something that needs to be addressed a lot a lot quicker than than maybe some of the other issues we might be focusing on. Yeah, you know, you you bring up that that balance of research versus support and services. And you know, I don't know about you, I, I talked a little bit about this at the top of the show. You know, I I often and generally have been like you. I'm I'm very service oriented because that's what I do. I, I'm out in the field. I'm out in the community working directly with families, and you know, trying to get the help and the in the services out there. But I don't know the the recent CDC stats uh, have have got me second guessing myself a bit. And I, and I don't know if you have that's altered any of your perspective a bit. But to hear one in sixty eight, it's got me wondering about causes a lot more and and making that at least for myself personally, a bigger priority of, of what I read and how I'm researching and how I'm kind of educating myself. I think it's it, it's not one or the other. I think it yeah. could be both. And it, it, obviously there's a balance. Uh, but to me, I, I see a lot of the struggles that families are going through today firsthand. And to mm-hmm. me, obviously we, want, we, we don't want these numbers to keep increasing. We want to know more about why it's happening. But there's still you know, over $300 million are spent on autism treatment annually. And the numbers are increasing exponentially every year. So we want to make sure that the services we are providing are really cost effective and that they actually work. And so seeing some of the services that are out there that maybe we are spending a lot of money on but don't have as as fruitful effects, I think that can, you know, we can save on that end and put that money into research on why why mm-hmm. that, you know, why those numbers are increasing. Sure, sure. You, you brought something up I want to make sure we touch upon um, in a little bit more detail, but it's probably about time for us to take a little bit of a break. So let's take a couple-minute break, and then we'll be back uh, with some more with Sarah. Be right back, everyone. Autism Spectrum Therapies is proud to present Autism Spectrum Radio. At AST, we see a world where people with autism dream and achieve their full potential. Our promise is to support families through our extensive resources, highly trained staff, and outstanding programs. At AST, we recognize that every child is unique. 
We are proud to offer what we believe is the most cohesive approach to supporting your child's needs and goals at each stage. From ABA to speech therapy, occupational therapy and social skills, we have the elements you need to build the plan that is just right for you. One company, one team with one mission to support individuals and their families to dream and achieve their full potential. Call us today to let us know how we can best support your family at 866-727-8274. To find out more about AST, visit our website at www.autismtherapies.com. This is Autism Spectrum Radio. If you have a question or comment for our host or today's guest, please send an email to moreinfo at autismtherapies.com. That's moreinfo at autismtherapies.com. Now, back to the program. Hey, welcome back, everyone. Um, Rob Haupt, your host here on Autism Spectrum Radio. And today I'm joined by uh, Sarah Gershfeld. Um, and we've been talking about Love My Provider, a great resource that she created online that's been going on since 2011, giving families resources, information, um, as well as her most recent blog, which I thought was really cool. Um, you know, you talked a little bit about quality, which is something I want to talk about um, for a little bit. But I, before we do that, um, one of the other things, I guess, statements, comments that you made in the blog that um, I think is, really makes a lot of sense to a lot of people who listen to our show regularly is the idea that, you know, sometimes we, we roll out the lights, we've got blue, we've got all the walks in April, but it seems like there's a whole lot of focus in April and maybe it, it dissipates over the year. Um, and I thought that was a really a great point is, you know, I know sometimes people talk, at least people I talk to, say, you know, what's AST going to do for Autism Awareness Month? You know, you guys must be doing something big, and I feel like we tend to put all of our resources or time into April rather than, hey, maybe let's keep this momentum going throughout May, June, July. Maybe focus on it come November when there's a big holiday season getting going and, and people maybe need different types of resources and support. So I thought that was a really great message you added in to your blog. Thanks. Yeah, and you know, I do want to highlight that a lot of these organizations they do work year-round to build up to this event in April. So I don't want to downplay any of the efforts they've put in as well, because I know that many people are working year-round. So I don't, I don't really want to say that nothing's happening, but you know, sure. for the families out there, I think it's it should be an ongoing discussion. Which I I, I agree with what you just said in the sense that it, it needs to continue year-round and. You know, we we want to keep the movement going as much as possible, and if it needs to come to April to get to get the ball rolling, great. We just want to fly yeah. with the momentum and keep it going as much as possible. I have noticed that there seems to be a lot more walks in other times of year. Where for a while it felt like every walk was either in April or October. Um, I feel like right. for a good That's four true. years, like that was always the month. And now I feel like I go to walks in September, in October, in April, in May, and I mean, I've done like a January walk, which was probably only a Southern California thing that you could actually pull off. 
but it was it was great to do that. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. There there's so many wonderful organizations. At least you know we're in Los Angeles, so there's so many organizations out here that are working year round, and they do have those events. Um, you know, and I know nationally, it's a really great opportunity to just highlight everything that has happened over the year. Yes, yeah, totally. Um, well, going back to the quality piece, you know, you you talked about this, the amount of money that is being spent on supporting families and providing services and and, and helping our kids. Um, it you know, when you add it up, it's pretty huge. And I know here in California, you think about um, DDS's budget and how 10% of it goes to autism therapies and treatments. Um, I think your point is is right on. It's should we be evaluating what services are out there? Should we be looking more at at outcomes, at quality measures to say, you know, this is working. Let's let's put more money into this. Let's start things earlier with quality outcome or quality services. Um, From your perspective, being that you now are on this quality side, I kind of think of everything as life pre-insurance and life post-insurance. That's, <laughs> that's just kind of the way my world works. Is right. have you noticed any changes? You know, you're you're hearing these feedback from families. You're looking at things from a from a different point of view compared to me. I'm I'm just kind of curious. Has has this big you know autism insurance mandate has that changed anything that you're seeing? So let me tell you a little bit about the way I see the the funding funding source situation right now. Awesome. So typically in in any market or any consumer driven business, you have a customer who receives a service of some sort, and then if they like the service, they keep going back to that that person yeah. or that provider. And if they don't like the service, they find a different one. And the person who's paying is typically the one receiving the service. So it's very easy to you know, not give the money to one provider and to give it to the other one. And the values of the payer and the customer tend to be the same. So they want high quality, they want politeness, they want, you know, responsiveness, they want flexibility. Today, because of some of the changes we've seen in insurance, what you see is that the payer and the customer are different. And, yes, it's a little different with the regional center system, but the regional center system has been around long enough to have these quality checks in place, I would say, Mm -hmm. more or less. Um, But with insurance, those quality checks aren't quite there yet. So what you have is that the values of a funding source, which might be be cost-effectiveness, you know, quick turnaround in treatment, or maybe the insurance company has a good administrative relationship with that provider, those values are very different than the customer values, which are those things I mentioned, which is that they have, um, you know, they're flexible with scheduling, they're polite, they're gracious, they, they listen to parent concerns, they take into account some of the ecological factors that the family is going with. So what you see is you have this, ba- this, this quality balance that's a little mm-hmm. off-kilter that I, I'm hoping some of the, the things I'm writing about and, you know, having these types of conversations will eventually yeah. sort out. See, that's interesting because I, I was thinking when you first started describing this, I was thinking kind of like you said, the regional centers, I've worked with 13 of the 21 regional centers here in California now. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's a similar type of thing where the the customer is, you know, or I guess the consumer and the customer are a little different. The regional center pays for the services, but the people receiving it are different than the regional center. And that leads to some of these same dilemmas of, you know, what does everyone value? How does the system work? 
And sure. It it so it's interesting to, to what you're saying because you're right. There there hasn't been a huge conversation yet about you know what are quality outcomes and and how do we evaluate some of these different providers. Definitely, and you know we know some things that make a difference. Like we understand that you know, if the staff is qualified, they will probably, you know, doesn't mean that, you know, back in the day you didn't need a BCBA, for example, to provide behavioral yeah. services. Anyone could supervise. Obviously, there were some clinicians that may have been good at what they were doing despite not having that credential. Mm-hmm. Today, that might be the case as well, but we know that if someone has a credential, they're more likely to be a little more knowledgeable about what they're doing than someone who might not have that credential. Uh-huh. Um so we, we have those kind of indicators, and not just for behavioral services. We have that for occupational therapists, for MFTs who also provide those services. So, you know, having families looking at licensure or credential of their staff is really important. Um, we also know that a lot of providers can have some accreditations that are associated with higher quality uh, services. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we tell families they can look at the type of training their staff are provided, you know, mm-hmm. whether they do professional development. We have a lot of issues. You know, I see when evaluating providers where you might have someone who has a lot of experience but maybe isn't staying up to date on the new research that's coming out in terms of new strategies they can be using and things like that. So there's yeah. there's a lot that can be done. I think it's a conversation that's starting to happen more and more, but it needs to it needs to continue. So and I, I, I kind of like – I'm actually really enjoying your perspective because – I, I agree with what you're saying about some of the quality pieces. Uh, one of the things I've seen is I feel like over the last few years, I, I heard often from a lot of different people in the provider community where people trying to downplay the BCBA and um, not so much downplay the the merits of the credential, but downplaying how much a BCBA should be involved in a program. You know, I'm someone who thinks that a BCBA should should truly be supervising a program. And I, I don't mean sitting back in an office and reviewing data once a month and maybe doing like a quarterly visit. Like I want the BCBA to get out in the home, see what's going on, truly supervising staff um, both live and in the office. And I feel like I've seen more of that because with the insurance mandate, it's it's become more required of providers compared to um, certainly not all regional centers, but what some regional centers were were allowing at times. Right. A lot of those those funding changes have really helped because now, if I am not mistaken, I, you know, I don't I don't bill to insurance since I'm not a, a care provider, but right. um, I understand that 100% of services have to be done in the home now. You know, a um, lot of family, or a lot of clinicians in the past would go out once a month and spend the, the next six or eight hours or whatever they had, you know, writing reports. I said that in air quotes. Um, right. And, you know, a lot of a lot of funding would be going towards administrative costs instead of actual clinical costs. But I think at the end of the day, with any other license, license or credential, you know, you can yeah. go to a pediatrician and they can be, you know, uh, medically certi- certified in the highest of regards but they may not be a fit for for you or your child, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just Mm -hmm. understanding whether it's about fit or whether it's about the qualifications and making sure that you're kind of setting – you want to set your child up to have – it's not always going to be the best experience, but there's certain things we can do to make sure that it's as close to the best experience as possible. Yeah. 
No, I, I, I hear you. You know, I, and I, and I think about your analogy. You know, I, I think, I don't know. My wife always talks about going to the dentist, and you know, when you go to the dentist, you know, some, you know, the the hygienists are going to come in and do a lot of different stuff, and and are going to do your cleaning and, and maybe take your X-rays. But at the end of the day, when you have that appointment, you just you want to make sure the dentist is actually coming in there, spending some time with you, looking at your teeth and making sure that uh, you have some interaction there just to make sure, hey, the expert's coming in and saying that I'm okay. They looked at me. They saw everything. I got to talk to them. Um, it's not just that, like you said, the, well, they wrote my report in the office or they analyzed my data in the office. It's, I have this ongoing dialogue with them um, because I, I think that, you know, I think BCBA is coming out and doing that is, for me, a, a good sign of quality. Um, you know, how often does that BCBA go out there is, has always been a big sign for me of quality. Not that they have to be there every single week, every single moment, but, you know, do you have that ongoing support and guidance? You, you have, whether it's you, your insurance yeah. company, the regional center, that's what you're paying for. Definitely. And the other thing, too, is that, you know, we're talking specifically about behavioral services, but we have to keep in mind, too, that there are a lot of providers out True. there that kind of tout these, you know, these cure-alls or these ideas about what a good provider is, and they might be the mm-hmm. nicest, most understanding, most flexible, you know, always there. You know, they, they might have these same characteristics. And mm-hmm. so that kind of leads me into my other point about really understanding what do we look for when we're looking for an effective provider? And mm-hmm. I kind of gave some some ideas that, you know, ASAT really, or sorry, the Association for Science and Autism Treatment really promotes a lot of these ideas of making sure parents know to know what the red flags are when providers are promising a cure or um, saying that no one has proved it, but say that, you know, research is coming. And these are other things you can look at, not just at behavioral services, but other, other people people might throw these ideas of what might work, and it's important for them to know that people don't always have their child's best interest in mind. You know, would you mind just taking a step back? I, I'm, I, I'm really glad you brought up ASAT, um, the Association for Science and Autism Treatment. I, I actually, it, it's something that I'm surprised at um, how many people don't know about it. And I don't just mean parents, mm-hmm. I mean providers themselves. Um, could you maybe give everyone like a, a quick you know, summary, what is ASAT? Because um, I bet there's a lot of people who don't know what it is. Sure. Um, so I am no longer on the board of ASAP, but I was for about for three years. And mm-hmm. they're a wonderful organization. They're based on the East Coast, but they're, they're an online resource, and they're, they're wonderful. Everyone on the board is a 100% volunteer. Um, there's, you know, no overhead for the for the board members, um, mm-hmm. and it's run by David Solidarity, who um, is a behavior analyst and PhD, and uh, he's very, very passionate about making sure that families and providers, pediatricians and journalists even are educated about what it means to talk about autism in a non-science way, scientific mm-hmm. way. Um, so they are just a wealth of information, and um, from what I understand, they have a new design of their website coming out um, in oh, a few cool. months, that's going to be really easy to navigate and really get a lot of resources to the people that need them. Um, they tend to stay low radar, I would agree. They have so much information, and I would say the best best way to learn more about them would be to follow them on Facebook. Uh, on Facebook. It's facebook.com slash ESAT online. 
Um, and you can also sign up for their newsletter, which comes out every quarter. And they have really great articles um, for parents and for clinicians. Um, and yeah, I'm just I'm a big fan. I, I love their stuff. Yeah, I feel like I only truly got that real exposure to them maybe maybe about four or five years ago. And um, I was blown away once I was shown their website. I was like, yes, this is this. There's something here. This is really really cool because you could look up just about any therapy, any treatment as it relates to autism and see, you know, what research has been done. Um, you get summaries, you get links to journal articles themselves. I mean, it was, it was a really great, just a really great resource um, as a provider. And I've heard from a few parents that it's been amazing for them as they were trying to figure out, okay, what do I do? My child just got diagnosed. I really want to do my research. And a lot of them ended up starting there. Yeah, I... I would say for any family who hasn't heard of it, uh, it's definitely a resource worth checking out. It was started. I I, I don't want to give the wrong, wrong year, but I know it was started. It was over ten years old, and the founder is actually Catherine Maurice, who's the author of the uh, book Let Me Hear Your Voice. Yeah. Um, and so she she was really passionate about this cause, and you know if you're if you're a parent right. and you haven't heard of it, definitely check it out. It's great. You know the. I apologize. I probably should have asked you this at the top of the show, but it, it's something that I wanted to uh, to take a few minutes and and have you talk about. So I'm kind of I know jumping around, but um, I know you were involved with with Love My Provider. If, if I'm not mistaken, you guys did a study with Northwestern University about um, yes, about the way you put your resources together. I, I would hate to have you have the show come and go without hearing a little bit about that and learning about what that study was. Um, so I apologize. I'm a little scattered with my cold today, but I'd love to hear about no, that. No, not a problem. Um, so we we actually were very lucky to partner with a company called Spring Theory, and they match uh, corporations, large corporations, with MBA programs, and basically help realize ideas that the corporations might be struggling with, or you know, really do some analyses for them. And it, what's really exciting about it is you get these top-notch MBA students working for you essentially for the semester, you know, trying to solve whatever problem you're finding, whatever problem you're trying to solve. Um, so we we matched with them, with Northwestern, and we had um, a group of eight very talented MBA students who kind of just, they, they talked with me and said, you know, what are you trying to accomplish? What are your goals? And decided to put together a survey trying to identify um, a, whether Love My Provider actually has some viability, so whether parents would use it. And then if they would, what are their pain points? So, you know, what is, what is the toughest thing for them about finding a provider? Um, and then in terms of finding a provider, what are some of those quality indicators we talked about? Um, and they also wanted to understand how families who have special needs children interact with the mm -hmm. Internet. So if we're creating a resource for these families, we want to make sure we're creating a resource that really matches their needs. So it was really great because they, they got a panel of 300 families who filled out the survey. And, you know, I, I reached out to a couple local providers as well to see if they would share the, the survey with their families. And we had a little mm -hmm. bit of luck with that, but we mostly focused on we, – we did the analysis based on the 300 families that their panel consisted of. Um, and we didn't find too much difference between the local LA families and the panel families that were national. Okay. Um, but we, what we found was that they looked at a couple different things. They looked at a number of different providers that were difficult to, to find. They found that 
um, the medical component of their child's services were the toughest. So psychiatrists, pediatricians, gastro, doctors, specialists, those were very difficult for them. Um, mm. They kind of confirmed that they do find a lot of these these families through word of mouth. Um, mm-hmm. And they actually rated professionalism as the top in terms of what has an impact on their choice of choosing a provider. And we had a, wow. a long list of items. So we wanted them to choose from professionalism, rapport, cost, location availability. And, it, you know, I thought that cost would be a number one, which wasn't. I thought that at least um, rapport with the child. But it sounds like from some of the qualitative interviews they did also that professionalism was huge for them because they have to deal with so much as it is. The last mm. thing they want to deal with is someone that, um, you know, is invading boundaries or maybe not treating them with the respect or decency that another, you know, any other customer would, would want. Um, so, you know, there were... They, these students are really great. They sent me an 80, 80 slides, and I, there's no time to go through all of it, but just really rich information. And I'm hoping to write it up uh, for another Huffington Post blog as well. So hopefully wow. you guys can look out for that soon. No, that sounds awesome. That's really cool. Yeah, I, I agree with you. That that may not that wouldn't have been the first thing I guessed is professionalism. You're right. Yeah, professionalism. That was that was. I was. I'm trying to think of the other interesting results they shared. Um, they were saying that many of the families who do interact online, they don't post information about their child or their diagnosis, but they right. will tell anecdotes or stories. So that was really great. You know, we mm-hmm. were, right away we're like, we don't need a profile page. We want complete anonymity. Um, and we made it so that we were respecting their oh. privacy. Um, so it was really interesting. We saw an interesting gender divide as well. Um, we, we were also trying to figure out, we wanted Love My Provider to be a free service, but uh-huh. we were also thinking, well, what would be more valuable to the family? You know, if a family is paying like a dollar a year or something like that, would they be more likely to share because they're, they know it's like a private community? But we ultimately found that families wanted this to be a free resource, and we were completely fine with that, but it was really good to mm-hmm. get that information validated and make sure, you know, we're giving the families what they need. Yeah, because you hear that contradictory research sometimes where you know, even if you charge someone a dollar for like a – I've heard that about like workshops. If you do a free workshop compared to a workshop where you charge a dollar, more people attend the dollar workshop because they've paid for it, so therefore there's like an assumed value to it. But at the same mm-hmm. time, you want to give free resources. Exactly, exactly. And yeah. there's so many resources out there. So, yeah, we are, we're, we're, we were completely fine keeping this as a free resource for families, and we're happy to do that. Awesome. Well, we're kind of coming to the end of the show, and, and I think I'm probably uh, only able to talk for a little while longer before my, my nose and my lungs fill up. <laughs> with. Uh, but um, I want to make sure everyone uh, knows how to reach you, especially knows how to get to um, love my provider. So uh, if you could start off, give everyone the website address so they know how to find love my provider. Sure. Uh, yeah, feel free to check us out at www.lovemyprovider.com, just as it's spelled. Um, and, you know, if anyone is interested in collaborating or learning more, or, um, if you have resources you'd like to send our way, uh, you can email me directly at sarah at lovemyprovider.com. Um, and, you know, feel free to check us out on Facebook, Twitter. We're all over the web. You probably have seen us by now. Awesome. Well, it's, it's great to, to have you doing what you're doing and, and spreading the word about just people's experiences. And it's just another way that 
you know, bringing people together. And it's, it's nice to have this, this kind of, I guess, avenue for families to connect um, as it relates to rating their providers. That's great. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, so, ah, final minutes before my voice goes and, and, uh, and I lose my steam. Um, as I said, uh, we're getting back off the ground and running again here on Autism Spectrum Radio. Um, hoping to have uh, actually two shows next week that we get to post. Um, goal is to have Reva Martin on sometime next week uh, to come back again on the show and talk a little bit about just the recent CDC study, uh, her impressions on it. She's been so involved in the community uh, from both a service as well as a research point of view. I really wanted to get her perspective. And then also hear um, from some teachers who are doing some great work um, and trying to get a different kind of book out there for our kids, uh, something a little bit more tailored to them and, and not necessarily to us. So those are two shows we uh, hope for next week. And then uh, a few more conversations after that. As always, if you've got questions, if you've got comments, more info at autismtherapies.com, as well as uh, post stuff on our Facebook page. Um, we're going through it. Christina and I are, are answering your comments and questions and just trying to keep everyone connected as well. So hope you guys had a great weekend. I hope you're about to have a great weekend since it's, uh, it's upon us, which I think I could benefit from a, a little time in bed and a little R&R to, to get over this cold. Um, but take care, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye, everybody. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of Autism Spectrum Radio. For additional information, we hope you have enjoyed today's episode of Autism Spectrum Radio. For additional information and resources about autism, visit www.autismtherapies.com. Please join us each week for a new episode or visit our archive to listen to and download previous shows.